I want to invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17 to begin. We're in 1 Samuel 17, and you recognize this passage. It's about David and Goliath, and so often we want to talk about David. Oh, and David's faith. Be like David. Have David's faith. And I don't want to, to do that. Um, I want to, however, see that our confidence should not be in ourselves. Our confidence should not be in our way. Our confidence is fully in the Lord. And I w want us to recognize the contrast between the arrogant, boastful nature of Goliath and the confidence of recognizing that the Lord deals with us in our circumstances. We should have confidence in the Lord. Take a look, please, at 1 Samuel chapter 17. Again, familiar passage to us. We'll start reading in verse 4. It says, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a, a bronze armor, he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are, not, are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants." But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now you know the, the fear that came over the people of Israel and the, the fear that came over Saul and all the things that went by. And David hears of this, etc., etc. They have this, the conversation with Saul, willing to go. Saul offers him his armor. It doesn't, doesn't work out, so he goes out and just has his staff in his hand. He grabs the five smooth stones, etc., etc. Let's pick it up there. Verse 40, 1 Samuel 17, 40. Then he, David, took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, and he was, uh, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, 
and with a spear and with a javelin would I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. In our approach... To a holy and just God, we must not come with self-confidence, but rather in grateful understanding of God's blessing upon us through faith in Jesus Christ. Take a look with me, please, at the book of Romans chapter 4. This morning, as we continue our study of the book of Romans, we come to a section that illustrates, again, that God justifies people through faith in Christ alone. That God justifies people through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so as we consider these first eight verses of Romans chapter 4, we want to consider this. No boasting, just blessing. No boasting, just blessing. Let's take a look at what Romans 4, 1 through 8 says. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So the question we want to ask first is, can Abraham boast before God? Can Abraham boast before God? Verses 1 and 2 again. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So the question is, what is discovered about justification when considering the case of Abraham? What is discovered about justification when considering the case of Abraham. Now, this comes on the the heels of something that Paul just taught 
take a look back in chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. As he's concluding this section, one of the concluding points he makes is this. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so I might say to you that Paul asks this question. Is Abraham an exception to this rule? Is Abraham an exception to the rule that a man or a woman or a child is not justified by works but is justified by faith in Christ alone? Is Abraham an exception? Did Abraham earn himself a place with God? Well, I think the Bible answers this quite well. Does Genesis reveal that Abraham initiated a relationship with God? Let's take a look. Let's head back to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. Genesis, chapter 12. Does Genesis reveal that Abraham initiated a relationship with God? Genesis, chapter 12. Chapter end, uh, me, chapter 11 ends with Abraham's father's genealogy, the descendants. It talks about Abraham coming from Terah. As you get into chapter 12 and verse 1, the Bible reads this. Now the Lord said to Abraham. It doesn't say, and Abraham said to the Lord. Instead it says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's promise. God initiates. Abraham responds. Now, we don't have a verbal response. We have God's record of Abraham's response in verse 4. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him. Well, that's good. God spoke. Abraham responded in obedience. I wonder what the record of Scripture reveals about Abraham, the father of the faith. God promises to bless Abraham and the nations through Abraham's seed. Just a couple of short scenes later, Abraham is protecting himself and exposing his wife to harm. This is one of those things that really makes my skin crawl. And I think it makes your skin crawl when you think of Abraham protecting himself and exposing his wife, Sarah, to harm. In chapter 15, God reiterates his promises, his covenant with Abraham. Abraham believes God, and God declares Abraham righteous. Look at chapter 15. Genesis 15 and verse 6. It says, and he believed the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, 
as righteousness. So God declares him righteous. In chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah hatch a plan whereby Abraham would make a baby with Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. This does not exactly acquit Abraham of lawless deeds. We come a little later in Abraham's life, in chapter 20. You'd think years have passed. God has already initiated a relationship with Abraham, established his covenant with Abraham, reiterated that covenant with Abraham, declared Abraham righteous. We would think Abraham would be making spiritual progress. And yet in chapter 20, Abraham reverts to his old ways of protecting himself and exposing his wife to harm. I think the biblical record is clear, don't you? That Abraham's works do not and did not justify him. In fact, if Abraham were being judged based solely upon his own works, his works would condemn him as my works would condemn me, as your works would condemn you. It was believing the promise of God that resulted in Abraham's justification. It was believing the promise of God that resulted in Abraham's justification. And this is exactly what God's word is telling us in the book of Romans. That justification, having our sin forgiven, and having God's righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, applied to us, being declared righteous. Justification is by faith in Jesus Christ alone and not by the works of the law. Abraham was justified by faith, and so I ask you, who deserves to be honored? Not Abraham, but the God of Abraham. In whom should Abraham boast? Not in himself, not in his endeavors, but in the God who promised and the God who justifies. See, God's word is filled with this kind of assurance, and I want for us to look at a few passages. Please join me in looking at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. A refreshing of the gospel encourages our souls, my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We need to rehearse the gospel, not just so we'll learn how to tell it just right, but so that we will never deviate from it in our own lives. But we will always recognize that our standing before God is dependent not upon us, but upon him. Not upon our shaky ground that changes from moment to moment and day to day and week to week but upon him who never changes and his word that is forever settled in heaven. Friends, don't look at this coronavirus situation and say, oh, uh, my neighbor needs to be humbled. 
oh, our nation needs to be humbled. That's true. Look right here. He said, I need to be humbled. I need, I need to get out of my norms and my comforts and understand what God is teaching me. I need to humble myself. I need to be on my knees and I need to be exalting the glorious God who is, the glorious God who does, the glorious God who will continue to do what is right, what is good, what is best. We need to rehearse the gospel so that we recognize our standing is based not upon us and the things we've accomplished, but upon him, God, through Christ and the things he has already done, continues to do, and will fulfill perfectly in accordance with his promises. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one may boast. Not Abraham, not me, and not you. Take a look, please, at Titus chapter 3. I want to start reading in Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, and I want to read right down through verse 7, where God's word says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, these passages are telling us that our boast is not in us. It's in him. Come to him. See, the Lord Jesus lived for us. He lived in obedience to the Father's plan. He lived perfectly in our stead. Jesus laid down his life. He died for us. He was crucified for us. He paid for our sin, a debt that we could never pay. He was buried, and the third day, God raised him up. He rose for our justification, for the declaration of our righteousness. But that's not given automatically. This comes through repentance, recognizing our sin, turning from our sin, and turning to Jesus Christ, recognizing that the work has been done, that it is finished, that he has done everything necessary to secure our eternal redemption if we'll Call upon the name of the Lord. We will be saved. It is not our righteousness, our goodness, or effort that produces a righteous standing before God. 
it is our righteous God who provides this righteousness through faith in his righteous son, Jesus Christ. Head back to Romans chapter 4, please. Romans chapter 4. Well, if Abraham, the father of the faith and physical progenitor of the Jewish people, cannot boast, can anyone? Well, this is our next question. Can a sinner boast before God? Can a sinner boast before God? Let's take a look, please, at verses 4 and 5. Romans 4, verses 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. The worker receives his wages. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In verse 4, we see uh, what happens when a person tries to earn a righteous standing before God through their own efforts. We want to put God in our debt. We want him to owe us something. Well, Paul's already run down that road for us in Romans chapter 2. Let's remind ourselves of that, please. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. He's taught us this fact, this truth. Romans 2, 6 and following. He, God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey the un, excuse me, but obey unrighteousness, there will be fury and wrath, or wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Well, without having been a part of the study, if you were just to read those verses, you might sit there and think, well, that doesn't answer very many questions. In fact, that sounds like a typical view. If you do good things, if you obey and do what's right, you will have heaven. And if you do what's wrong, and do bad things, and do not obey the truth of the word, then you will have hell. That sounds very regular. But I think, if you've had any experience in reading the book of Romans or the rest of the Bible, you'll understand that there's more to the story than just taking those verses and ripping them out of their context. Does Paul's argument in the book of Romans anticipate anyone being able to stand happily before God dressed in their own righteousness. Oh, I've done good. I've been a good boy. I reached out to my neighbor. I even gave them some of my, yes, some of my toilet paper. I gave them some rolled oats, some of my pasta and rice. I will definitely be able to stand before that judgment seat well, my friend, there's bad news and then good news. 
Make sure you wait for the good news. The bad news is Paul's argument does not substantiate the possibility of anyone standing before God dressed in their own righteousness and smiling but instead fear. Let's see the argumentation just a little bit. Romans chapter 3, please, and verse 9. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Listen. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. If that's not enough, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. If that's not enough, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world held guilty before God. Why? For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And then verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, my friend, if you want your due, if you want what's coming for you, it will be tribulation and distress rather than glory and honor and peace. But thankfully, as Paul Harvey used to say, there's the rest of the story. Head back to chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 5. Oh, I hope I didn't depress you yet, or maybe I hope I'm glad that I did. I don't know. As we respond to our need, for our desperate need for salvation, as we recognize our desperate vulnerability because of our sin, God, like a, a ray of sunshine after days and days of rain and clouds, a ray of sunshine comes through in verse Four, excuse me, verse 5 of chapter 4, and listen to what he writes. Paul writes this in verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes, believes in him, in him who justifies the ungodly. Well, well wait a second. We were just talking about the ungodly. Who's the ungodly? Me. Who's the ungodly? You. God justifies the ungodly. The one who believes his faith is counted as righteousness. Faith in Jesus Christ results in a declaration. God declares the one who has faith in Christ righteous guiltless, perfect, holy, accepted. This is good. Rather than seeking to be justified by our works, Paul tells us that's not possible. 
we must be justified by believing in him who justifies the ungodly. God says there's hope, hope for those who are condemned as sinners. Yes, yes, hope. This has been his point all along. This is why he was desirous to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome because the gospel brings forth fruit and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for from it God demonstrates his righteousness from faith to faith the just shall live by their faith because God through that faith declares them righteous and transforms them in righteousness. God wants us to see ourselves as he sees us in order that he might rescue us from ourselves and make us as we should be. In admitting our sin, we see ourselves in need. We are then ready to hear God's redeeming work through Jesus Christ. What type of people does God justify? The ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. What does he do with us? Verse 5 answers that. Those who believe, who have faith in Jesus Christ, are counted as righteous. So, he asked the question, essentially, can Abraham boast before God? And the answer is no. Can the ungodly boast of ourselves before God? And the answer is no. Well, speaking of the ungodly, I think we can say this. Can David boast before God? Can David boast before God? Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing to, to the one, excuse me, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. God calls David, in other places, the man after his own heart. We know David. We know of his position as the king of Israel. We know of the many psalms David wrote. We're aware of the covenant that God made with David, that David and his sons would sit on the throne of Israel perpetually throughout eternity. We, we read in numerous places in the prophets that it will be David sitting on that throne with all of the great accolades that we could convey upon David. He too, he too was a sinner. And so many of his sins, not all of them, I am sure, his sin is recorded in the pages of Scripture. And of interest to us at the moment is one set of sins that we are very well familiar with. While you turn, I would like for you to turn, please, to 
Psalm 32, which is what Paul quotes. He quotes in verses 7 and 8 from Psalm 32. Head over there, please, to Psalm 32. Of interest in David's recorded sin is his sin of not going out to battle with the people that he was to lead and his sin of coveting after Bathsheba and then not only coveting after her, actually sexually sinning with Bathsheba and then covering up that sin by murdering Uriah the Hittite. We're familiar with these things. When Paul quotes of David in the context of the ungodly being justified and blessed, we, he quotes from Psalm 32, which is one of David's psalms of confession. Take a look, please, with me at Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man among, excuse me, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David was not counted righteous before the Lord because he was sinless in his life or he steadfastly obeyed God, but rather because he knew what kind of God had made him and because he knew what God is like. He was able to trust God even when he felt the pain of his own sinfulness and the tension that his sin produced within him in his relationship with God. Instead of continuing to hide his sin before God or cover his sin, he acknowledged his sin. He unveiled his sin. He confessed his sin to the Lord. This trust in God and subsequent confession of sin resulted in blessedness. But was David worthy of honor? Should David boast in David? Absolutely not. Take a look, please, at Psalm 103. Psalm 103. David should not boast in David like Abraham should not boast in Abraham like I should not boast in Rob. Psalm 103, please, a familiar passage to many of us. I want to read for you, and perhaps if you want to, where you are, you can read out loud along with me. That's up to you. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all 
your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Bless the Lord. Remember him. Remember what he's like. Remember who he is. Remember what he does so that in your condition, in your sin, rather than hiding, concealing, trying to make up for it with good works, trying to earn your place with God by outdoing the evil that you've done. Instead, turn to him. Turn to him. Abraham could not boast. The ungodly cannot boast. David cannot boast. Head back, please, to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Not boasting. No boasting. Just blessing, just blessing. Romans chapter 4, the last concept we want to talk about this morning is believers are blessed of God. Now there are multiple tiers of this discussion of our blessing that we want to talk about. Believers are blessed of God. Look again at verses 6 through 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart, excuse me, righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. First of all, there's a declaration of blessedness. The root word here in verse 6 is the word that Jesus used in the Beatitude. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, blessed are those who are persecuted, etc. Blessed, blessed, blessed. The same word is used by God about God. For, in, for instance, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verse 15, Paul is penning these words about God. He is the blessed and only potentate. He's the blessed and only ruler, the blessed and only sovereign. He's blessed. And this is what God calls us who believe. We are declared blessed. Those who believe in the sufficiency of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are declared blessed. Part of that blessing is the declaration of forgiveness. So declaration of blessedness, Declaration of forgiveness. It says in verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Lawless deeds. The word is anomia. It's lawbreakers in Matthew 13, 41. It's lawlessness in Romans 6, 19. It refers to violations of the law. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Forgiven is the Greek term atheimi. It means to let go or to send away. It's a word that we're familiar with. It's remission of sin. The same word, atheami, is used in Acts chapter 10 and verse 43 where, the, um, where Peter declares to all, excuse me, to him, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. So part of this blessedness is a declaration of forgiveness. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds, violations of the law, 
lawlessness, those who violate the law in any way. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are declared forgiven. They're taken away. They're removed forever. And whose sins, harmartia, that's to miss the mark, are covered. Covered. Both the Greek word and the Hebrew word simply means to conceal. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Now, it's interesting. If we try to conceal our sin, they are revealed. But when we reveal our sin to God, they are concealed. This is part of that blessedness of being declared forgiven. He goes on in verse 8, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon, count, declare his sin. In other words, this is saying in a different way that we are declared sinless. There is no sin on our record. Now take a look with me at one other text of Scripture. I might, maybe more, I don't know, we'll see. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is speaking about the ministry of reconciliation and what reconciliation does. The call for the believer to be involved in this ministry of reconciliation, that God is reconciling people through the heralding of the gospel. But in verse 19 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a text that I want for us to notice related to what we just read and what we just read is, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Verse 19 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that, uh, that is, In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, listen carefully, not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting their trespasses against them. This is a declaration of God's willingness to forgive. God has entrusted to us, believers, he has entrusted to us this message to the world. You can be forgiven of all your sin. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. This blessedness is upon the ones who believe. We are declared forgiven. We're declared blessed. We're declared forgiven, and finally, we're declared righteous. God declares us righteous, a declaration of righteousness. Now, we've spoken of this quite a bit because it's at the heart of the gospel. Not only are our sins forgiven, but God declares that we are right before him, that we are right with him, that we are safe, and secure with him now and tomorrow and forever if you have turned from your sin and turned to Jesus Christ in faith based upon what he has done. Jesus' righteousness is credited to those who have faith in him. Look at what it says at verse 21. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him or through him we might become the righteousness of God. So there's no sin. There's no failure. There's no guilt. Instead, instead of sin, failure, and guilt, there is a declaration of perfect obedience and there is a declaration that we are accepted in the beloved. Let's take a step back from the passage to get a larger glimpse, just for a moment. What does this passage reveal about us? We are ungodly. We are sinners. We cannot gain God's approval by our works. We need God's offer of salvation. Well, what does this passage reveal about God? He is ready to forgive. He is ready to declare you righteous. He is ready to bless you with an eternal, unshakable relationship with himself. And he is utterly trustworthy. My brothers and sisters, my friends, if we can trust God with our eternal soul, then we can trust God with our daily circumstances. Food shortages? Maybe. Economic collapse? Maybe. Job loss? Maybe. Physical illness? Maybe. What if we what if we do enter into the valley of the shadow of death? Are you ready? Will the shepherd walk with you there? These times may be uncertain, but God's plan is not uncertain. Consider these words. Well, this road will be hard, but we will win in the end simply because of Jesus in us. It's not if, but when. So take joy in the journey, even when it feels long. Oh, find strength in each step, knowing heaven is cheering you on. Almost home, brother, sister, it won't be long. Soon, all your burdens will be gone. Pray with me. Father, you are worthy of our trust. I pray for each one who may be listening, who may be watching. Dear Father, draw their attention to yourself. May our boast never be in us. May it always be in you. And may we be blessed, blessed because we trust Christ alone for our salvation. I pray for believers that we would trust you more and more. And I pray for unbelievers that they would come to a place of knowing that you are trustworthy, that they would entrust the very keeping of their soul to you. Father, you're good and worthy of our deepest devotion. 
May you be praised today. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like to leave you with the last two verses of the Bible. Here's what John pens, but I'll say better. Here's what God speaks. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Amen.